0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back
1: to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And today we are lucky to be joined by Tay Sturry, who is the founder of Sturry Legal Services, a law firm in Indianapolis. Tay is going to be unique in that he's our first guest from Indiana. He is the past chair of Indiana's State Bar's Labor and Employment section. Amit, is this our first out-of-state
0: guest? I think it might be, actually. I'm trying to think of it. I know we've had folks who kind of practice in multi-states, but first out-of-state guest.
1: Oh, you know what? We had Jennifer in DC is the only Oh, one. that's true. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's right. Tay, you are our second out-of-state guest. <laughs> Welcome. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So, Tay, you you've been a Neela Illinois member, but you are not in our state. So, your practice is located in Indianapolis.
2: That's right. We decided, to, or I decided to join Neela. Illinois, because our organization here in Indiana is not nearly as robust uh, as yours is. You know, our organization is represented by just uh, a handful of plaintiffs' lawyers, but uh, you folks there in uh, Chicago, you have a much uh, larger organization. So I thought I would, you know, take advantage of that and uh, coattail onto your organization by uh, joining your organization as uh, kind of an affiliate member.
0: Well, that's great. We we love folks coattailing. So yeah. you have a sense of why. Indiana has a smaller organization is there are there just less employment attorneys or employment claims or give us kind of your your thoughts on that
2: well, Indiana is just one of a couple of states, and I forget the other state where they're, although they have anti discrimination laws on the books, Indiana does not have a viable remedy. In other words, the victim of discrimination cannot go into state court to prosecute his or her case. And so it's very difficult for plaintiffs to prosecute their case here in Indiana. And of course, as you may realize, as in other states, you know, the judiciary here in Indiana tends to be very conservative. And because those two situations, plaintiff's uh, counsel, that is plaintiff uh, lawyers, find it pretty tough to uh, make a living at, at this practice in this area.
1: So when you there's there's a lot to unpack there to to dive in. There are. So in Illinois, obviously, we have the Human Rights Act, uh, right, which covers what essentially a series of federal laws cover at the federal level. If we understand correctly, you're saying there is an Indiana equivalent to that. But if an employer breaks that law and discriminates based on sex, uh, race, age, what have you, it's sort of a violation without a remedy. There's nothing that can the statute doesn't provide for a remedy or what happens?
2: That's right. Uh, A victim of discrimination, if they pursue their case uh, using the Indiana State Administrative Procedures, they have to file with the Indiana Civil Rights Commission, and then it is the commission who has the authority to investigate or look into the case. And if the commission, the Indiana Civil Rights Commission, finds that there was unlawful discrimination. Unfortunately, the victim or the employee, their only remedy is back pay and perhaps reinstatement. There is no provision for compensatory damages or punitive damages or even attorney's fees uh, here in Indiana. And therefore, you know, the victims of discrimination have to pursue their cases through the EEOC and then uh, federal district court.
1: So if, if if somebody is a victim of discrimination in Indiana and you file a charge and you end up filing suit in federal court, you are not able to also allege state claims on top of that. Is that correct?
2: Generally so. If it involves wages, you know, non-payment of wages, Indiana uh, does happen to have a fairly robust non-wage, uh, non-payment of wages statute. So, yes, you can bring a state claim into uh, federal court, and quite often, you know, that is the case. Okay.
1: Well, that's good. At least I, I think I. It's funny because I actually did see some case law recently that they have a, a an Indiana equivalent to the Illinois Wage Payment and Collection Act. So that's that's at least Oh, that good. too. Yeah. So Tay, it, it, I, I think just even from that short bit, we get the sense practicing in Indiana is is really different than it is practicing in Illinois. What are what are some of the things that are enjoyable about practicing there? What are some of the thing What are some of the pros?
2: Well, for me, it's the, the meeting of the clients and uh, trying to help them out. Okay, that's probably you know, the most you know rewarding aspect of it. And then, of course, you have colleagues, you know that. Uh, do the same thing and then collaborating or uh, mingling with them, you know, that's enjoyable as well. And I think for me anyway, probably the most rewarding aspect of it is just knowing that you're, you know, on the right side of things, you know, trying to help people out who are you know, victims. I mean, I I used to have an old saying, you know, <laughs> borrowed it from Texas and that is, you know, one riot, one ranger. So, you know, as a plaintiff's lawyer, you know, sometimes
0: that's the way it feels. That's awesome. I love that saying. I may steal it from you. Yeah, me too. That's yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah. One question to circle back on punitive damages I have, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but how does Indiana generally treat punitive damages? For some reason I feel like I thought I, th- I think I've seen something about there being a special fund that Indiana does for punitives.
2: Well, if you were to bring a state claim, yes, the in, and again, Indiana just discourages any sorts any sort of lawsuits. They have a 75-25 ratio. In other words, in a tort action, or MedMal case or something like that, the state of Indiana gets 75% of the award of punitive damages. And then the victim only gets 25%. So obviously, you know, there's no incentive to, you know, pursue punitive damages. And several years ago, the uh, plaintiff's bar brought suit against the state of Indiana, the legal theory being that, you know, you were taking from, you know, the plaintiff, you know, without due process. Because, you know, any award of punitive damages that was supposed to go to the plaintiff, you know, the Indiana, state of Indiana was just taking it without, you know, due process. But that action failed. And, of course, now Indiana gets to keep 75% uh, percent of any punitive damages. What do they do with that money? Quite frankly, I don't know. Maybe they, they buy a limousine for the governor. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. Oh, good. oh, good. Greg
0: Pence gets a limo. Uh, yeah um so the sense i'm getting from this is it's very hard to file a lawsuit or it's you know there's not much of an incentive when you do file a lawsuit do things move pretty quickly then
2: Well, my practice is primarily in federal uh, court. So in federal court, depending on which judge you get, yeah, things can move along fairly quickly. And in state court, depending on which county you're in, you know, for example, I just uh, filed a claim down in Monroe, uh, Monroe County, and things are moving fairly quickly there. Uh, so a lot of it depends on you know which court you're in. If you're in you know a small circuit court, the things uh, can move fairly quickly. If you're in a busy jurisdiction like here in Indianapolis, things uh, move at a glacier speed.
1: Fair enough. So you, your practice is not just limited to employment law. You you do a few other things as well. One of them is social security disability work, right?
2: Yes, it sort of dovetails with the you know disability prong of employment law. You uh, know, a lot of, there are a lot of overlapping issues.
1: So uh, to step back, I don't actually think we've had a guest talk about this yet. Can you? Can you give us kind of a big picture overview? What is Social Security Disability? What do you do for folks in that practice?
2: Well, if I get in on the ground floor of the Social Security Disability claim, you know, I counsel them about needing to preserve their treatment records, how to actually communicate with their treating physician as they go and attend you know, their medical appointments. You know, for example, you know, when uh, they happen to go in to see the doctor, the first question, doctor asked him is uh, how, how are you today? Well, the natural, you know, uh, patient or human response is, oh, I'm OK. And so unbeknownst to the patient, you know, the doctor notes that, you know, the patient said they're OK. And, you know, that hurts their Social Security uh, claim going forward. So I counsel them about how to be honest you know with with their treating physician now if i catch a case uh, where you know the it's at the appeal uh, stage uh, then it's just a matter of uh, gathering up the records the medical records analyzing them and uh, seeing, you know, what the medical records say in support of the Social Security uh, disability applicant. And the rule of thumb is uh, that the applicant has to be totally disabled from working pretty much, you know, even in sedentary or, you know, medium duty or heavy duty. So the uh, default, I suppose, uh, threshold is whether or not they can work uh, in a sedentary uh, position. And if they can, then usually their uh, claim is denied. And so my goal in uh, assisting these Social Security claimants is to make sure that the uh, records and the record will uh, sustain their application in that they are not able to work even in sedentary work.
0: So it's a lot of that work then just working with the client and their treating physician just to make sure the documentation is done properly?
2: Yes. And then, you know, resisting the Social Security Administration's denial. I mean, the rate of denial is about like, you know, the rate of summary judgment in, you know, employment cases. You know, every case is pretty much denied about the only a case that gets approved, you know, without a lengthy appeal, is if somebody has terminal cancer.
0: Wow. So then, how does the appeal process work? Well, you
2: file for an appeal hearing, and then the the Social Security Administration will assign it to an administrative judge. And those administrative judges are statutory and different than the administrative judges that you may see at the EEOC or even the MSPB. And anyway, it's heard, the appeal is heard by the administrative judge. There is a hearing typically anywhere from you know 30 minutes to an hour you, depending on which judge you you draw you can argue your case and present uh, evidence, point to uh, documents you know, in the medical records that support the uh, claimant's claim. And then uh, several weeks later, the administrative judge will issue his or her decision. After that, if it's an adverse decision against the claimant, then you have to file an appeal to the appeals counsel in Washington, D.C. Once the appeals counsel renders their decision, if it affirms the administrative judge's adverse decision, then the next appeal is in federal district court.
0: It's a lot. So, if let's say you win that entire process or win an appeal, can the claimant recover their attorney's fees for that process? <laughs>
2: Well, up to the level of the Social Security administrative judge, the attorney gets 25, uh, maximum of 25% of the back pay that may be uh, due and owing to the claimant. If there is no back pay, then the attorney doesn't get anything.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: So does SSDI tend to be more of a volume service? In my head, it's more akin to like workers' compensation or you kind of, I, I think about people who do that in the same way I think about comp that that's, you know, you, you have quite a few clients in that spot.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is uh, very much like a workers' comp where you have to do it volume. And my practice, I don't do it volume. I do it more as a uh, kind of as a pro bono service as it were to, you know employees who have lost their job, obviously yeah you know, if they've lost their job because they're disabled, you know they look on my website and see that I you know do social security disability, and so you know I will help them you know with their social security disability plan because obviously you know they're without work and you know they need some sort of income
1: yeah it's hard because in these cases. I remember when I used to do almost exclusively hostile work environment work, like you'd find people who mentally, you know, have just been through the ringer, have presumably been fired at the conclusion or culmination of that harassment situation. And they're really mentally not in a spot where they can just hop back. I mean, they're trying to find work, but you know, these are folks who are really in an emotional state. They may be suffering from acute actual mental health conditions at that point based on what's happened to them or, or what what was there already and was triggered by what happened. And it's like, th- they don't have a lot of great options, right? Because if you're disabled, then, you know, from a Title VII perspective, you're not really accruing lost wages then, right? Because you're not actually able to work at that point.
2: Yeah, the avenue that I point out to employees or like that, or, you know, I try to see if their employer offers uh, either short-term disability or long-term disability. The standard for not being able to work for short-term disability and long-term disability is uh, more liberal than uh, the standard that the Social Security Administration uh, uses, especially in short-term disability or long-term disability. And so, in talking to the client, you know, we try to figure out whether the company in that situation, like you say, who's been you know subjected to a hostile work environment, you know, can take advantage of either the STD, short-term disability, or long-term disability. And as you know, also, you know, FMLA. So, you know, we we talk about uh, that with the clients here in uh, Indiana. You know, FMLA, short-term disability, long-term disability. And then, of course, if they apply for long-term disability, most long-term disability policies require that you also apply
0: for Social Security disability. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer.
1: I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show.
0: Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share.
1: And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review.
0: But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah. Otherwise, we're all set. So, Tay, one thing I've been super interested about is just the concept of mediation in Indiana. It it seems there is more of a preference for it. And maybe this goes in line with Indiana wanting to deter just litigation generally. So tell us your thoughts about mediation in Indiana and how that functions
2: well the in state court the judges especially here in uh, Marion County and some of the other busier jurisdictions really encourage almost to the point of arm twisting you know the parties to get to you know mediation and that's true in family law that's true in commercial litigation tort litigation and the like. There's varying degrees of success in mediation, you know, depending on you know who the mediator is and what jurisdiction you're in, et cetera. But mediation does uh, tend to uh, work, and I think that's why. You know, the courts, especially the states, state courts, really encourage it. In federal court, the success rate is a little more uneven. In the Northern District of Indiana, they have a roster of uh, mediators, especially in employment. I'm on that roster, but I've never been uh, called or selected to serve as a mediator in the Northern District. I have served as a mediator here in the Southern District of Indiana, and the EEOC has asked me to be contract mediator for, you know, various district offices from California to North Carolina. And so mediation does work in employment, especially with the EEOC, uh, the success rate for mediation, you know, hovers anywhere from 85 to, you know, 90%, you know, uh, in EEOC mediations, at least the ones I do. Okay. I, you know, can't speak to, you know, other EEOC uh, mediators.
1: How, how does mediating help you as an attorney? I mean, what value do you think you get just as a practitioner from the perspective of also serving as a neutral sometimes?
2: Well, you gain a perspective, uh, as to what both sides, uh, what their attitudes and what they're thinking is, especially valuable when you're talking with, you know, defense counsel. And, you know, quite often you're also talking to the employer, defendant employer, who sometimes is unrepresented. And so you get an idea of, you know, what uh, they're thinking, what their attitudes are. And that's helpful, you know, if you're on the plaintiff's side, because, you know, then you can talk to your client about, you know, you know, the defense posture, because after all, it is, the, you know, the employer who uh, writes the checks. So, yeah, you know, you, you need to find a way to motivate, you know, that employer to write a check. So it's uh, helpful in that regard.
1: Uh, is it Rich Gonzalez or David Lee who always likes to say you're trying to get money out of this person so
0: you should really be nice to them or you should really try to think about like, how to communicate with them effectively? Yeah, it might be both. I know David may have posted about that on the list there recently, but you know so I'm kind of curious. you said your success rate is you know 80 to 90 percent. What do you think it is that you do that can that gets people to resolve cases?
2: I maybe have a little bit of a leg up because I used to work with the EEOC, and so I know what the, how they think and what their processes are. Also, I'm a litigator, and then also having some, quite a bit of experience with, in dealing with the, the defense bar, and so you know that has been very helpful and getting you know the, the for example if you're talking to the charging party or the plaintiff you know you provide them you know that information and it may not induce them to you know to settle the case but at least it uh, provides sort of a nudge in the direction of settlement and you bring the parties a little closer together you know you can either fight the fight you know from you know, using howitzers, you know, you know, that have the 20 mile range, or you can draw the parties a lot closer to where they're, you know, meet eye to eye. And you know, one of the things that I found that the mediation works the longer you have the parties together. So.
0: So what are your thoughts on, on virtual mediation and things being done over Zoom?
2: they i think they work but not as effectively as face to face some parties especially defense counsel they never want you know their clients to meet with the uh, plaintiff face to face and they quite often request uh, that there not be an opening general uh, session where the parties are together i routinely insist that they do meet Okay, because it's hard to be stay stay mad at the other party, you know. If you know they're sitting across the table uh, from you,
1: that that's interesting, Tay. Because I, I I've seen a lot of people argue the other way that those openings. I guess it would depend on what the opening statement looks like, right? Because if you're just relitigating the case, or you start with the fire and brimstone of you know they did this, they did that, it's going to inflame people. But there's always a world, too, right, where you don't go about it that way and you spend the time maybe on the opening statement doing something else. Can you talk about that a bit? Because I thought that I've seen that opening statement quaved quite often for the opposite argument that it's a case of not, oh, the parties will be, you know, it'll have a hard time being remaining angry at each other or what have you. But the opposite, it's just going to inflame everybody involved.
2: Well, one thing I will do uh, if I'm representing the plaintiff and not as a mediator, but one thing I will do is I will, you know, make my opening statement and then ask my client to speak as to how he or she felt as a result of the adverse action, whether it was, you know, a denial of a promotion or termination, et cetera. And when they talk about that, the consequences, the devastation that they, they suffered, you know, loss of job, you know, they repossessed my car. It's much more powerful, you know, coming uh, straight from them and having the defendant, not just the claims adjuster, but having the actual defendant hear that. Okay, because uh, in my experience, I found that most defendants, even though we think they're just mean, very mean, heartless people, they're really not. Okay, you know, to David Lee's point, you know, if you talk to them nicely and you can sort of pay play to, you know, their 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 better side, as it were. Okay. I found that that is more helpful in mediation than, you know, starting out separate and apart. Because if you start out that way where you're separate and apart in separate rooms, you end up, you know, staying that way and it's harder to close the gap, as it were. That's just, you know, um, my experience.
0: To try to close the gap or break an impasse, are there certain, um, like, negotiation tactics or games you'd like to use? I know some folks like using. Brackets. Other people do it differently. What's kind of your process? Well,
2: it depends. You know, sometimes I will use numbers. You know, I I will say, hey, look, I will aggregate the numbers. You know, not just what a jury might award, but also, you know, the cost of defense. You know, we all know that the cost of defense can vary. It can be anywhere from 100 and a quarter up to 250. You know, why not throw that money into the settlement pot? The other thing that I point out is it's basically the cost of an insurance policy. You know, once you do the payout, then you have an outcome certain. Okay, that closes, uh, you know, the uh, case out. And insurance uh, adjusters like that sort of lingo, okay, because the one thing that the insurance people don't like is uncertainty. They like discrete, you know, concrete information, you know, figures, money figures, et cetera, because that's – part of how they uh, stay in business. And so I use, you know, uh, figures, monetary figures, you know, might be, you know, uh, 180000 just uh, in defense costs, add that to, you know, the special, you know, damages, add that to the uncertainty of what co- uh, the compensatory uh, damages may look like. And if, of course, if you lose, if the defense loses, then there's the attorney's fees And it adds up fairly quickly. And so, you know, defendants have got to um, get the picture or get the idea that if they settle now, they will be getting a discount.
0: I love how you put it about it's really just an insurance policy. Well, we have one final question for you. And not to put you on the spot too much, but this is probably our best thing to do at the end of these episodes. We, We try to do a shout out of the week. So we just want to highlight something positive, just, you know, given that we're living in a pandemic. So it can be a book, it can be a TV show, it can be a person, it can be anything, just something positive you want to highlight for this week.
1: It's the one gotcha question we ask. We try to make it harmless.
0: It's also a way for us to know whether or not you listen to our show.
1: (laughs) Though to be Uh, fair, we knew that answer this time. Yeah, we did. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, my shout, shout out would be to a former client who survived lots of things in her life. She had a disability claim, and she is now to the point where she has, yeah. You know, we resolved her case, and this was a few years ago, but her name is Myoshi Gordon Matthews, And she published a book, made the hit parade on some sort of Christian publishing company list. And she is getting her doctoral degree somewhere down there in North Carolina. And the reason I give a shout out to her is she, like many, many, you know, discrimination victims has somehow managed with the assistance of, you know, not only uh, her attorneys, but the community at large and also the inner strength that she, like most of, you know, uh, most of our clients have, they managed to, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, You know, recover this in spite of, you know, all the devastation and the catastrophic consequences that they've suffered because of losing their job. You know, she lost her husband through a divorce because of the strain of, you know, the litigation. She had to move, you know, her health deteriorated fairly significantly. And so I don't know if that counts as a shout out.
0: Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that's an incredible story. Thanks. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's
1: that's sort of why we all do what we do, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, if folks want to find you, if they have questions for you about Indiana law, employment law, need an Indiana employment attorney, um, or anything else, how can they find you?
2: Well, I, I have a website, storylaw.com, and then you know my email. Otherwise, I have a very low-profile pro, low presence. I, you might find me on about the fifth, sixth or seventh page if you Google employment <laughs> lawyers. And, you know, I, I, that's okay with me because if I were on the front page, I, I fear that the phone would be ringing off the hook and I wouldn't have time to do anything else but answer the phone.
1: Well, Tay, thank you for speaking with us today, for sharing your story and teaching us a little bit about what it's like to practice in Indiana and the like. We really appreciate it. Thanks to those at home for listening. Please subscribe and share.
0: Our podcast is intended to provide general or reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that The hosts' opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.